welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, I have no client right now. Is that good or bad? It's pretty normal for me and how I work because I do all of my time with one client and and then have a little gap between clients usually, which is probably a good thing. Forces me to take vacation. Yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, probably work. <laughs> work to find a new client. If anybody out there is looking for awesome Elixir work, just putting it out there. Talking to a few places. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I've talked to a few places. Um, and, and I did take the other day off to take my kids to a couple museums. We went to the Negro Baseball League Museum. Oh, cool. And the American Jazz Music Museum and a Contemporary Art Museum. It is all in Kansas City? Yeah, yeah. There's oh, a cool. whole lot more. There's a ton, ton of museums here. That's right. Um, they really enjoyed it. And then on the way home, I told them we we're at the Jazz Museum to pick an artist that they had never heard of before. And when we got in the car on the way home, we just yeah, asked each one of them what artist it was. And then we played songs by them off of iTunes. That's so cool. <laughs> it was a good time. That's very cool. Yeah, I have not been to Kansas City, but I want to go because I've heard really good things. It's pretty neat. There's lots of free stuff, too, or or fairly cheap. The Contemporary Art Museum was all free. The other museums are in the same building, mm-hmm. and I think it's $10, $10 for an adult, something like that, $6 for uh, kids, 5 to 12 But if you go to both museums, the second one's half price. So. Oh, that's nice. It was was not too too expensive of a day, and got to see some history. It was really yeah, that's a lot really of fun. cool. But what, what were you gonna say? Sorry, I interrupted you. We went to the Central Library in Kansas City too, and I found out that they have three D printers and and laser cutters and stuff that you can reserve two hours at a time on. That's awesome. And if it's your project's gonna take longer than that, you can reserve more. You just have to find the slots that are open next to each other. That's so cool. Yeah, I forget. I mean, I've started getting a lot of books from the library recently. I feel like it's an, sometimes an underutilized resource, public library. Yeah, my, we use, there's there's a local one down the road and we use it quite a bit. And our public library has audio books that you can get online on their website and PDF versions of books that you can get or read online. It's So it's it's pretty neat. I was really surprised at all the stuff you can do. Yeah, that is really cool. And if they don't have a book, they'll get it for you. Right? That's the part that I love. They're like, sure, we'll reserve it from somewhere else. I'm like, okay, that's yeah, rad. They just want you to read. <laughs> and a lot of the libraries are getting rid of like late fees because they don't want it to be a burden on folks who can't, who need the library, um, especially. And so um, I thought that was pretty cool. Our library has late fees, but the one closest to us did a remodel since we moved here. And so they had a grand opening of their new inside and everybody who came they gave them a little wooden nickel that's worth ten dollars in in fine money that's awesome <laughs> so there are a lot of people in my family we can we can be, fine <laughs> you can be late you can be very late with your forever. books forever forever <laughs> yeah ten dollars is a lot of money in library late yeah fees. yeah because the library late fees i think are like uh, like five cents a day or a week or something it's it would take a long time yes they're not much of a deterrent for most people, I think. But when you need a library and you don't have the money, it can be a deterrent. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, are you working on anything fun in Elixirland outside of work these days? Um, 
not really. I should be. I so the contract just ended. Right. So I, I've been taking a breath and trying to catch up on on tax paperwork and and stuff like that. I um, all the other parts of running a business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the beginning of the year, and since I moved, we're getting a new accountant. So that's a fun thing to try to. Oh yeah, oh my inter- God. Interview people and and figure out, especially when it's hard to tell who knows the most about tax laws. Right. <laughs> when, when you don't. Right. When you're like, I don't know anything about this domain. Please help me and be accurate so that I don't get screwed. Right. So I guess um, with that in, in mind, what uh, what do you do when you're starting a, a new greenfield project? If I was going to do something during my off time here. What do you mean? What do I do? Uh, how do you how do you start a greenfield project? What's what's the first thing that you do? Like, let's say you're going to make a Phoenix app. And so how do you, how do you kick off a project? Um, well, is it for me or is it for a client? It's very different. Oh, well, let's, let's, uh, talk about both. Let's do you first since that's the situation that I'm in right now. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I would start, I haven't done something brand new in a while. I mean, I would generate a project, right? And maybe start with some sample tests just to make sure that the things that I want set up are working properly. What kind of things do you normally put in a project? Do you have like a set of libraries that you always add? It's a good question. I mean, I think the libraries that I always add are pretty standard. I think I try not to hold on to, I have to have these things, unless it's something you're like specifically around testing or whatever, um, and make sure that I'm adding the things that are appropriate for whatever the project is, because it varies, right? Because some projects I've done have been like little tiny mix apps that are very light and don't need very much. Whereas if I'm doing a project that, I don't know, has a specific focus, like there's going to be a lot of querying to external APIs, or there's going to be a lot of complex system interacting with each other, right? And I definitely want to have some sort of tracing, et cetera. So it depends. I don't know. How about you? Do you have a set of libraries that you bring in? Uh, I usually add mixed test watch because I like to just throw the tests up in a corner of the screen and let them go every time I change. Recon trace or recon, I guess not recon trace. I just use it for tracing. Oh, what else? Do I dialyzer? I usually put in there or dialyzer. And those that's that gets confusing because a lot of times what I'm talking about, I'm using Dialixer, but I, all the output and everything I talk about is Dialyzer. So <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's pretty standard for me to put in. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. But those are, those are the things that I think they're they're tools, right? They're not they're not functionality pieces, and and they're t- tools that to me are pretty important. I, I like testing is, is, and, and I've found that doing specs and, and types are really hard to do after the fact. So I try to put it in very first thing in a project. And I try to add documentation stuff too, just because that stuff gets, well, so documenting as I go with the ability to generate documentation. Oh, like XDoc? Yeah. Uh, especially for clients. So do you ever, uh, generate the documentation just to look at it in its generated form? What uh, what kind of things do you look for whenever you're looking at the documentation? Again, I think like the whole, the point of that is like thinking about it from the person who's going to be using it, right? Like is it reaching its intended purpose, right? Like is it clear if I were to try and go and look for the thing that I'm looking for, can I find it? Is it explained well? Are the examples sufficient, right? Like do they make sense? Because I mean, again, knowledge transfer is hard and it usually takes a lot more effort. You know, when you're transferring from, let's say you're working with another team and you do this a lot with clients, right? You're working with clients. You're like working on a project, you're working with them. And then at some point they take full ownership and getting, making sure that all of that knowledge transfer is 
given um, is really important, big part of that, even though it's not always fun, is documentation. One of the last clients that I was working with, we actually got a lot of positive feedback on that because we had a really tight timeline to transfer the information. Um, and it was a really complicated project. And they were like, thank you, you guys. The documentation is awesome. It's been really helpful for us to be able to navigate. So anytime that you have, uh, I'm, I'm assuming as a team, you're doing some pull request type system. Mm-hmm. So anytime that there's a pull request, do you, is, is that one of the things you check is, is yes. whether things are documented mm-hmm. every time? Okay, yeah. good. My, myself, I, I try to do that. And then usually at some point, you know, a couple of days later, I, if I can get the opportunity, I go back and look at the documentation after I haven't looked at the code for a little bit. Just to see if it like makes sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's been best for me. And I just did a handoff too where I documented everything. Yeah. So I had a lot of documentation too. And um, the last couple of days, I, I spent a couple hours each day going over that, answering questions and trying to fill in holes in the documentation. And then now I'm not working for them, but they had a couple little bugs in, in the code that they were confused at what was going on. So I had to hop in and I just helped them out. That's nice. Yeah, I I always sign all of my commits with my personal email address and everything so that later if somebody has a question, I, I welcome their emails. Oh, that is nice of you. Are you still doing that thing? Or I guess maybe not anymore where you're working. I feel like at one point we we're talking about pairing and working with folks and you had a team that was switching pairs every like, what was it, every hour? Every hour, yeah. Every hour on the hour. Um, no, the last client, they were they were six hours time difference for me. Oh, that me. would be hard. So yeah, we didn't, we did a little bit of pairing, but, but not a lot. Yeah, the hour long pair switching I find to be difficult at first, but then it becomes really, really nice. So there, there's lots of nuances that go into that hour pair switching. One of them is that whoever's been on the ticket the longest is the one that has to leave. So that makes sure that the person coming in is really engaged and taking part in it. Otherwise, the ball would be dropped. So so it forces them to pay attention quite a bit. Also, because of that, you frequently get most of a team, a normal size team that I see is like four to eight developers usually. And so almost everybody on the team will work on a ticket frequently before it ever gets completed or at least a large portion of the team so the knowledge transfer is is really well done there's a lot less googling and getting in in what i call the google hole which is when you just can't find what you're really looking for and you keep googling over and over because you have multiple people stepping in with different backgrounds and different ideas and sometimes the code gets refactored or changed along the way too because of people stepping in and you get everybody's ideas into one one architecture and it usually ends up being really really nice i mean i think the initial reaction i get when i tell people that story is like that sounds crazy (laughs) it is crazy right and like it's really hard how do you get anything done see that's that that is the big pushback and it's amazing what you can do in like a the pomodoro technique look at it's 25 20 minutes 25 minutes of focus it's kind of it's kind of amazing what you can get done in that amount of time and also you don't get into the google holes and take up all of your time where you're just searching and the person right behind you would probably answer it if you just would ask and and you don't know and after a little bit you know so many parts of the project that usually when somebody sits down you don't even have to tell them what you're working on they just know because everybody's worked on everything everybody knows and then you normally see after a 
while stories time wise shrinking quite a bit so they get split up more stories do and so they get completed faster and small they're smaller so they're more focused so QA has a a much easier job because the stories are very focused and on a lot of the teams that I've done that with the hour-long pair switching we get to a point where everything that gets past code review and QA goes straight to production because because the, the changes are so tiny that even if there's a problem, you can usually fix it right away. Yeah, we usually don't even roll back. We just keep going forward with it. Do you find that, and I would imagine that that kind of over time, if you're able to keep that up, that it really improves transparency and communication within the team as a whole? Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that you become less, the code becomes less like my code. And it becomes our code because everybody's worked on everything. So you get a lot less um, single person code ownership, like, you know, that don't touch that so that it, it can remove some of that animosity. But also the people that maybe you have a hard time communicating with, you are, are forced to communicate with them usually once a day or once every other day, at least whenever you're doing this hour long pair switching, but in small bits, right? You only have to deal with them for an hour. And after a while, even the people that you've had problems with, since you're only dealing them with them in hour bits, you learn how to work with them and they learn how to work with you. And you end up being close to people that you never thought you would be. And there get to be points where everybody's so in tune with each other that you, there, you don't have to say, there are certain things that stop having to be said. People just know. That one's hard to explain. But like even in code, like somebody will reach for the keyboard and just a little bit of body language will, will make them take a step back and breathe and look at the code again. Or yeah, just, just little things like that. There's a lot that just doesn't have to be said anymore. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, how do you, but I guess the hard part is getting past that initial hurdle, right? Because it can be really hard and probably feel unproductive at first, I would imagine. Yeah, when I when teams are doing this um, and, and they, they say, sure, let's try this, I usually say, let's at the you know at the end of the first week you're going to tell me i hate this let's stop i'm i'm done and and then i and and i tell them that way up front so they come into the meeting already knowing that they're going to be mad at the end of the first week um and frustrated and then i say well well what were the problems and a lot of the time it's we didn't get anything done every time somebody came on to a story we spent 40 minutes explaining the story to them and then we only worked for 10 minutes and then somebody had to go to the bathroom and so we got 10 minutes of work in an hour because you have that learning curve of everybody. A lot of a lot of teams have people that are siloed in their knowledge. And so you're getting over that of everybody's learning different parts of the subsystem. And also, I would say how a lot of teams average time on a ticket can be days. And so... How do we deal with that? Do we shrink tickets? Um, do we, re- well, a lot of teams that I've had do it, they record into the ticketing system at the end of every hour, like five minutes before the pair switch, they'll record a little blurb about what they've done and what they've been working on, which really makes it easy for the person sitting down. They can just read through, you know, the last couple of hours or even just the last one once this gets going uh, and they know exactly what's going on. Uh, if people are gone, there's always somebody to pick up that your bus number goes to like the entire team has to get run over by a bus before this work stops and management can hop in the ticketing system and they see exactly the progress every hour whenever you start doing that see some of the other pushback i don't have time to check my email (laughs) which is probably good right yeah yeah a lot of people tell me that they like even people who have paired if if you've ever worked with somebody who hasn't paired and then they start pairing a lot they'll say at the end of the day they're exhausted this happened when we do the hour-long pair switching the same people that if they've been pairing all the time, 
come in and say, I'm exhausted like the first time I was pairing. But, you know, there's there's two different modes of, of thinking. There's, there's focus mode thinking and diffuse mode thinking. Diffuse mode thinking is like when you're in the shower and you have this idea about the problem that you were working on at work, you know, or you have you are driving and you're like, oh, I, I need to pull over and write this down because I know I know how to solve that architecture problem that we've been facing for a while. That's diffuse mode. Focus mode is when you're actually sitting there typing and trying. And and we need both often to come up with, with creative problem solutions. And so part of, I think, the hour-long pair switching brings in is that you have a focus mode on one problem for a little bit and then you move to another one and you're in focus mode on a new problem, but that also allows the the diffuse mode thinking to be going on in the back of your brain about the first one. And so it, it gets you in and out of that mode pretty regularly. And then since you have more ideas of what's going on in other parts of the code too, architecture-wise, that the whole system, um, from what I've seen, starts to have a very similar, archite- a more consistent architecture across the entire project. And how often in code have you found two functions that they might do it slightly differently, but they, they do the same thing because you have one person working on one part of the code, one person working on another, and they both check these in and they never get seen necessarily at the same time. But when you're, when you're bouncing around like this, all, you carry a lot more of that stuff sticks in your head because you've used it all over. And so you're like, oh, this already exists. It's interesting because I feel like at first it would probably increase the cognitive load significantly, but then over time, if you keep doing it, it probably greatly decreases cognitive load because you have a better understanding of what's going on. I mean, isn't that the same thing of whenever you're learning calculus, right? So when you first start learning calculus, it's it can be rough and you know and really hard for a lot of people. But as you practice and do it more, then calculus becomes easier. Or like anything else, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, they're basically as listening to you talk. It's interesting because you're listing. There's like a lot of benefits, but I feel like the sell when I think about it is really hard. The sell is really hard. Uh, the The easiest thing I've been able to do on selling it is a lot of teams. That I talk to that, especially if they already do pairing, they will do what they call pyramid, um, which is just like a chart that makes sure that everybody pairs with everybody um, because they do want everybody on the team working with everybody else on the team instead of having clicks. And they'll, they'll, you know, there's, there's always somebody who says, yeah, we pair, let's say we pair eight hours a day together, just like one pair before we ever switch to work with somebody else. And when I'm talking to them, they'll say, oh yeah, that Chris Keithley guy, I cannot stand pairing with him. He drives me crazy. And I'll say, hey, what if you only had to do it for an hour and then you could move on? You didn't have to deal with him anymore. And that, that works as a sell for some people. Now we'll know if Keithley listens to this episode. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting how, I mean, we think about the importance of code and we think about the importance of tooling. And I've worked with companies who forget the importance of process around that, right? Like getting something out, getting a bunch of humans to work together and communicate effectively and collaboratively, take an idea and then build a thing. It's not just about writing code and building, right? It's not, there's like so much more involved. And I think the other pieces that allow for that to be effective sometimes get forgotten. Yeah, I've never seen a project fail due to a technology, a tool choice or anything like that. It is a process, process people problem. Yeah, a communication problem. It's always people oriented and processes are people oriented, even if you're using a tool to make it happen. And I think this also kind of brings me back to some of the conversations we've had. And like, this is a conversation that I think we could continue when Keith Lee's back on, when Keith Lee's um, 
back on the show with us because he's out today but how do we make that better right like how do we make and i think a lot of that also comes down to like building trust and this concept that i want to talk about at some point called psychological safety right on teams but like human beings are really complicated i'm very curious into like how do we make that easier and better because ultimately it'll help us build things more effectively right (laughs) and i I think that's a really hard problem to solve um and a lot of psychologists, you know, they, there's there's all kinds of books out there on on building teams and teamwork and and uh, was crucial conversations is a book that I tell a lot of people that they should read. It's about having the hard conversations and how to do it right. I I think that you know all of it comes down to trust and building trust from everything that I've read and and my anecdotal experiences. I mean, what are the things that you've done on your with your clients or with your teams, right? Like what are the things that have helped you to do that? Um, not just work, but play together. Uh, I have, I have shown up at a client with their team when the team is struggling to be a team. Um, you know, like the eight person team, that's actually eight teams kind of place where none of those right. eight people really interact. And I just brought a stack of board games and said, Hey, hey we're going to play games today. And then afterwards I'm going to take everybody out to dinner and maybe have a few drinks. If you drink, if not, you know, have some sodas or, or, tea or let's go out for coffee let's go have breakfast just try to do those not just at work things uh, get to know things about people's family and i have a i think this is just me personality wise and i don't know how to teach it to other people i just i tell other people that it seems to work when i meet somebody brand new i trust them a hundred percent i and people tell me i'm i'm approachable because of it I am I'm not one of those people that you have to prove that you're trustworthy before I think you're trustworthy. You're trustworthy to me from the moment I meet you until you show me that you're not. But then I'm pretty hard about once you showed me you're not, we're, we're kind of done. <laughs> and I think that that helps because when people feel trusted, it's easy for, easier for them to trust you. If because I I don't know I think it's it's easier to believe that somebody's being honest if they're believing that you're honest I don't I don't know how to no I mean that's that. really interesting perspective I don't think I hear many people that say that right most people are the opposite where they're like a little bit more wary which in turn probably makes them more guarded uh, and maybe a little bit harder to get to know and then in that case. Um, it's harder to build that relationship. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine not too long ago. Have you been watching any of this Twitter stuff about like this trend in management to um, have a manager give their team readmes about themselves? No. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) (laughs) So essentially the idea being, and I'm not making comments one way or another, um, because I think probably managing people is very hard, but the idea is that the manager would give the team a readme that, um, explains kind of what to expect from the manager and like explaining some of their whatever maybe explaining some of their tendencies maybe explaining how they like to work or whatever oh are you okay when you said a read me gives or a manager gives the employees a, a read me about themselves i thought you meant like if i was managing you i would write a read me about anna oh no <laughs> it's like that it does not sound like a good plan <laughs> unless it's a hundred percent like this is you're awesome you know and it's interesting though right because in a way it's like I, on one hand you hear people talking about it and saying like the manager's trying to be transparent and trying to be more efficient about communicating what folks can expect but then a lot of folks on the other hand i was reading about you know a lot of the comments that people were saying was like well you're most likely to break from a how well do you know yourself and b you're most likely to break from your expected your vision of yourself in moments that are the most challenging in moments that are the most stressful and then 
you don't act according to this thing that you've set out for yourself, I think you end up breaking a lot of, and coming back to it, right? You end up breaking a lot of goodwill and trust. And it's interesting because I think like, as we're talking about, the reason I bring it up is we're talking about trust, right? And like, I think if you have, if you have trust in a working relationship, you can really build on that um, and use that to have difficult conversations, to move things forward, et cetera. But if you don't have that, it makes it really hard. And I think it's interesting that this tool that is supposed to, in theory, help make that more efficient, there's definitely a possibility for it to be problematic. Yeah, yeah. If you, you, I think you mentioned it there, it was putting, if you put something on there and then you don't actually work that way at some point, then, then, then the whole, the whole paper, even though it might just be that one thing, that whole paper seems relevant. Well, and I think it's interesting. I feel like if I, if it were me and just from my personal perspective, like if I were managing a team, like I would want the team to give me readmes about them right like it's my responsibility if we were doing that not the other way around right like it's my responsibility to have to help them do their best work okay so i had a a guy that i was working with one time who said that somebody on his team asked him to go do something and he was the manager and he thought well you can do that why don't you just go do it yourself and and he asked me what i would do and i said i would go do it for him if they needed a glass of water they said hey hey miss can you go get me a glass of water i'm gonna go get you a glass of water because one thing i think that 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 shows that i'm I'm, I'm here to help you in any way to get your job done. If you need a glass of water because you're concentrating on what you're working on, I'll go get you a glass of water because that should be my job is to make sure the team is successful no matter no matter what that looks like. <laughs> and I feel like that sometimes gets forgotten uh, and also helps build trust in both directions, right? And so anyway, I thought that was really interesting as we were talking about it because I was like, it's, it's interesting that these trends that we, are, we are trying to make human interact. Some of these trends seem like and they're not bad, but it seems like they're trying to make human interactions more efficient, which is not an unreasonable ask, especially as a company is scaling, but but we're humans, right? And so I feel like sometimes in the attempt to make that more efficient, we lose what makes it human and then it becomes a less effective interaction. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that it's harder to build relationships whenever you get down to the efficient level because once you're super efficient, you're no longer having a real connection, right? Uh, it's, a, it's like... The same reason why I would prefer to talk to somebody on the phone than to text them is because I think that in the long run, our relationship will be better if we we interact on on that little more intimate level than a text. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there's more there's more to work from. There's more context, right? Like similarly, when we're working, we want context on what we're doing to have a better understanding. We make make better decisions and. When you talk to somebody, you can hear their voice, the nuances of the exchange, you have much more context to make it a productive exchange, right? And so I think maybe that's part of it is like, as we limit the context, you know, voice, sound, et cetera, like it makes it harder. So that makes me want to go back to the hour long pair switching because I feel the same way about the project. When you're bouncing around and working on everything, you have more overall context and it allows you to make better decisions. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was, I think it's interesting that's tying it back. So like we do that and it doesn't seem crazy It's interesting because it doesn't seem crazy when we're talking about work and actually getting work done. And so it's interesting to see this trend of trying to make it less communication, less nuanced. So what what are what are some things that that you can do to build trust in and and camaraderie on a team? That's a good question. I mean, I only know from my personal experience, right? I'm not an expert on this stuff, but like, I think, I think, I think something that you're saying, right? Like the pairing, if you have a team that is willing to pair, right? Even if they're willing to change every hour, but having everybody work with everybody else, and everybody says this, but again, having people interact with each other, all the people of the team, so that people don't feel siloed, right? Or don't feel like they're not part of the team, or don't feel like they're not included in the conversations. I feel like transparency, right? With our clients, when we work weekly, we try to in our weekly planning meetings, we always do a reflection on how the week was going. We do a retrospective. Out of that retrospective, it's like usually it's like I like, I wish, 
and from the I wishes, things that aren't going well, like we try and come up with the things that we will do to change that as a team and everyone is in the room and everyone's part of the conversation. And those check-ins happen frequently, right? To make sure that things aren't just being brushed under the rug and that things are being addressed um, as they come up. And it's a conversation that everybody can participate in. And again, like I'm not an expert, but I feel like a lot of it just comes down to transparency and communication, which sounds very vague and not very useful. It sounds really useful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, once you're transparent and, and people can trust you, I don't know, for me, when I have trust with somebody and when I don't, the differences in how we can work together are huge. Yes. And you can move faster and you can do more, right? Right. If that's there. Um, so what are the things that you do to kind of facilitate that, right? And a lot of it is like being very transparent, being very upfront, right? Like on a lot of projects, I'll run a pre-mortem pretty early into the project being like, what are the things that we're worried about? What are all the things that we're worried about going wrong? And then, okay, well, what happens if these things go wrong? Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Uh, yeah. So having a, pl- having a plan together for when things and go that's wrong. that's communicated openly, right? Um, when we sit down with clients and we're trying to get a sense of like, what is the scope of work, right? We do some experience mapping, we do some story mapping. Everybody's in the room, everybody's participating. So everybody can agree on this artifact that we come up with and everyone's on the same page. And like, yes, this is the thing that we're building, right? So that no one's surprised mm-hmm. later. Like the stakeholders are in the room so that later no one's saying, wait, that's not what I wanted. Or wait, nobody told me. Wait, this is different. Or wait, nobody talked to design and that's not what we were expecting, right? Like it's amazing how much just being able to have those conversations and have everybody participate really affects the outcome of the project. Yeah. I think I think those are really really important. And w- but one of the one of the I think it's simple some people find it it rather difficult to do. It's kind of amazing how much a handwritten note to somebody on the team thanking them for even little things can can change the way that the team works together. And you can you can this doesn't have to be at work. You don't have to be the manager. You can be anybody on a team and start doing that and, and just watch how things change. Not at work. Do, do it with your partner. Just stick little notes in places where they'll find it that thanks them for the things that they do. And then every once in a while, I'll write a big one. I had a person who used to work with me, his wife told me one time that he has a letter that I wrote him that he keeps in his in his drawer of his desk at home pulls it out every once in a while that was just like a thanks for being you letter uh and I've had another guy like send me a picture of a letter um and a woman that I worked with one time who uh I ran into her not too long ago and she said you know ever since you gave me that letter she's a manager now she says I write letters for people on my team and I don't send them emails to thank them I handwrite letters and hand them to them it's so much more personal that's really great that actually is really great yeah and it doesn't have to be much <laughs> right you could just throw a little sticky down that says hey thanks for fixing the build yesterday or thanks for never pointing fingers or thanks for for the hug yesterday when i found out my mother was sick or whatever you know <laughs> right no, I mean, and, and, but see, what is it about? And it's about that personal connection. And I don't know what, like, how do you, what is that, right? Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough about that. But, the, but it's about the attention and the personal connection and recognizing people as humans and their value, right? I feel like validate, like really celebrating victories, even the small ones. Well, and it's, it's just easier to work with somebody that you feel like actually cares about you as a human. And that's the crazy part is all of this stuff seems so basic, <laughs> right? It's like, be a good human. Listen to other people. Put your phone down. Yeah. <laughs> Show them some care and respect. Like, it'll be fine. But it's hard. It's really hard. Everyone's kind of the protagonist of their own, you know, their own story and their own agenda. So I don't know. I think at some point I would love to talk more about, like, how do you, what are the actual tenants? Because people have done a lot of work about around this. And I'm really interested in this because I think, like, 
building psychological safety on teams is crucial to the effectiveness of a team. And I think, I don't know, I think it'd be an interesting conversation. I think, I don't know if you all think it'd be an interesting conversation to have, but, but I'd have to learn a little bit more about it. And I think find someone who knows more to talk to us about it. Yeah. <laughs> should, we, should we find a psychologist to come on? Or somebody who's done this work, yeah. Or who's spoken yeah. about it or whatever. I think it's important. I don't know. I don't know if our if folks listening to the show find it. would Maybe maybe they want to hear more about Elixir specifically and less about this stuff. But I do think it plays an important role in how we build products and teams. I feel like it's a little bit of a shameless plug. But uh, the other podcast that I did for five years, that's, I shouldn't say it, might start back up. How about that? A lot of what we talked about is is building teams and and building trust and how that all looks and and you know we had CTOs on there we had agile coaches on there we had developers uh, so there's there's kind of a lot of different views never psychologists unfortunately because <laughs> uh, that that might have been really good I know that we have a. We both have a hard stop coming up so I don't want to try to keep you over but you are participating in a conference coming up in San Francisco pretty soon. Well, before that, I'm actually speaking at uh, MPEX in LA. Oh, cool. Congratulations. When is that? Uh, end of, beginning of February. So very soon. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, good luck there. Thank you. Nice. And that's in LA? Yes. Nice Southern California. I know. Um, are you, you're going to a conference soon, but right? No. Uh, yeah, the end of, end of February at this, I think you're going to be at, uh, at BeamConf yes. and be I'm going to be at Lone, Lone Star in Austin, Texas with, uh, Keithley. Keithley will be there. He's, uh, he's teaching with Ben Marks about distributed and, uh, I'm a backup speaker there. Oh, cool. So, so, um, I can't, you know. Hopefully I don't have to give my talk. If not, maybe that's what I should be working on right now in my time off is, is get that done. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of excited because it's in, in Austin and I like Austin. I used to, I was in the military and was in San Antonio for quite a while and used to drive up to Austin on the weekends just because it's a fun, neat town. Yeah, so so I'm excited to be in Austin and, and to, to see Keith Lee and, yeah. and Ben. It's always fun to get to see folks in person. I mean, it's lovely seeing you all on the screen, but it's way more fun to get to see you all in person. I pulled out the picture of all of us at Gig City the other day on my phone and was showing it to somebody. I was like, hey, I remember when we were all together. In person, <laughs> right? So rare. Cool. Well, thanks for chatting today. That was fun. When is the San Francisco conference? It's it's like the day before Lone Star. I think Star. so. Yeah, it's very very much around the same time. Cool, um, cool. And is it is it a multi track conference or single track? It's it's multi track and and Impex is single track and Lone Star is single track. Yeah. Well, thanks for for hanging out. Yeah, it's fun. Always fun. Good luck at your, good luck at your conferences. Yeah, you too. Well, I'll talk to you before yeah. then. But yes. Oh, that's true. I hope to see you before then. Anyway. I know. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right. Have a great day.